Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn, and Drew isn't here this week, but if he was, he'd say that we have over 50 years of combined brewing experience, and this is what we do with it. This week we have something kind of special. We're going to be starting the first of two episodes all about the IBU. In this episode, we're going to be recapping the experiment that we did trying to determine uh, how close the IBU estimates you get from your software are to what really ends up in your beer. In the first segment, we'll be describing the experiment and how it's all going to be run. And then after a break, we'll be talking to Dana Garvis, who runs Oregon Brew Labs and did all of the analysis of the hops for us. We'll be talking to Glenn Tinseth, who developed the Tinseth formula for calculating bitterness and IBUs. And we'll also be giving you the results of the experiment. In the next episode, next week, we'll be talking to the brewers who brewed it and getting their reactions to the results. And we'll be talking about a new type of IBU calculation called the MIBU that seems to be more accurate for things like uh, using whirlpool hops and hop stands and that kind of stuff. So sit back, grab yourself a beer unless you're driving, and here comes all about the IBU. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. It's supporting family farms. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned hop supplier whose mission is to connect hop growers and brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is proud to have an established return-to-grower program which redistributes an average of 75% of their business earnings back to the family farms who grow the hops in your beer. Where you buy your ingredients matters, and with Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. Learn more at yakimachief.com slash return dash growers. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. 
Join the American Homebrewers Association in November and claim an out-of-this-world offer. Use the discount code 5STAR, F-I-V-E-S-T-A-R, to receive a free 32-ounce bottle of IOSTAR sanitizer when you purchase a one-year membership. Get your free IOSTAR with the promo code 5STAR and find holiday inspiration for great gifts, craft beer recipes, beer and food pairing suggestions, and much more by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental today. Hurry, this offer won't last. Get the details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Hey everybody, we are back and we are sitting in the lab and we have a really cool experiment coming up that we want to talk to you about. When I was in Yakima sitting in the sports center with uh, Gary Glass and Matt Bowling from the AHA, I asked Gary if he had any ideas for experiments we could do. One of the reasons I asked Gary about that is because we've just begun collaborating with the AHA and Zymergy Magazine, and we're going to be doing a series of experiments coordinated with them. The results will get published in Zymergy, and uh, we're just we're just like really excited about this whole thing. So Gary said that one of the things he'd always wondered about was how accurate. IBU estimates are of your beer, uh, whether they come from software or a spreadsheet or whatever. Uh, this piqued our interest, uh, especially because of uh, our great sponsor, Nico Brew, who <laughs> sells hops. So basically, we have put together an experiment in conjunction with the AHA and Nico Brew, and we are going to be testing beers to see how accurate your hop estimates are. Basically, what's going to happen is that Nico is going to supply the hops to our Igors. Uh, We are going to have them, and us, I guess, brewing uh, pale ale, IPA, and double IPA. All the hops will go through analysis at uh, YCH first, so that we know that we have a real accurate number on uh, on IBUs, uh, alpha acids, beta acids, and hop storage index. We will then send these out to our Igors, who will brew the beers, uh, send samples of the beers back to me. I'll take them to a lab to have the final beers analyzed, and we'll compare that with the estimates that come out of uh, various pieces of software and uh, see just how accurate uh, the software estimates of IBUs are. Uh, it's, I mean, it's going to be like so cool uh, to kind of get an idea of whether or not all this stuff we've been telling ourselves all these years really has any validity to it, huh? Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm really excited about this experiment. Uh, obviously, our Igors are too. We if you don't realize this, we pre-announce the experiments to the Igors to give them a chance to sign up and get ready and get moving. And I think we did that, what, two days ago? Yeah, right. And two days ago, and we already have 36 batches of beer signed up for, and that's actually going to be our cutoff limit. So we have the three recipes, and we have 
uh, 12 participants doing our basic pale ale, uh, 11 doing our basic IPA, and 13 doing our basic double IPA. And uh, we have a couple of groups doing multiples. So we have four brewers who have signed up to do all three uh, recipes, which will be great because it gives us a chance to say, okay, we've isolated out the, the system variable, right? right? This is the same equipment. So how do, how do these different IBU formulas look when used on the same equipment? Uh, same thing with people doing a couple of people doing basic pale ale and IPA or basic pale ale and double IPA so that we can also compare, okay, what happens with the same equipment and different gravities and different hopping rates. So now this is not going to be our traditional sort of triangle test sort of thing. This is actual just objective measurement type testing, but there will be a hedonistic component to the test. And what we're going to do is we're having our Igor send us enough beer so that Denny can take some of it to get assayed, take bottles for himself and bottles to ship to me so that we can then have people taste these and do rank uh, tastings. Basically say, okay, you have 11 beers in front of you. Rank these in order from most bitter to least bitter. Because one of the things I want to see is, is there... Is are, are we going to see a trend where IBU numbers actually match up to people's perceived bitterness? Because remember, IBU in terms of actual relation to perceptual bitterness is not really a thing. All IBU really is that number. It's a measurement of the amount of of uh, sorry, I was going to say the wrong thing. It's actually a measure of the absorbance of the beer at 275 nanometers. And the idea is that it's a quick and dirty test to sort of tell how much isomerized alpha acid you have in the beer. But that doesn't actually really necessarily tie in to how bitter the beer itself tastes, because there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. So what I'm really curious is if we start with the exact same lot of hops, which is one of the cool things that Nico's doing for us, he's going to give our Igors hops from the exact same lot stored in the exact same way as the lot that gets analyzed. So... Everybody has a known quantity in terms of their hops. If we do that, and then we have these things brewed on different systems, what do their IBUs come out as, and what does their perceived bitterness come out as? So that's one of the things I'm, I'm really curious about. Because for the most part, what we always tell people is choose a formula. You know, there are a couple of different formulas out there. The big ones that everybody probably uses are either uh, Rager or Tensith. They have different strengths, different weaknesses. And so we tell people just choose a formula. Figure out what it is that you like. You know, if you know 35 IBUs on the tenth of the scale is something that you like, now you've got that as a touchstone, and you know exactly how to how to make your recipes for yourself. Um, it turns out, like all the stuff about finding an IBU, it's a giant mess. It, <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. You look at like the actual formulas for this sort of stuff, and they are scary regression equations attempting to fit into a pool of data. And the guys who have done these will tell you that these formulas are really designed to work best with their particular brewing systems. So now we're going to see with a whole bunch of different brewing systems, how close some of these formulas get. So if you have some ideas or some suggestions to, you know, add into this experiment in terms of calculations or tastings, feel free to reach out and touch, uh, touch base with us, uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com or Igor at experimentalbrew.com. And let us know what you think and uh, offer any commentary. Like I said, we are out of signups for this particular experiment because, unfortunately, we can't quite get Nico to ship everybody hops in the entire world as much as he would like to. <laughs> uh, so uh, we, we are we are really looking forward to it. We should talk a little bit about the recipes so everybody knows what we're doing there. 
Uh, all three of the recipes are related to each other. They're all the exact same grain bill, just scaled differently. Uh, and the exact same hop loads scaled differently. So, for instance, the pale ale is calculated to come out at 1054, has 10 pounds of uh, two-row, one pound of Munich malt, and a half a pound of Crystal 60. And we're asking everybody to keep their uh, malt choices to domestics. Then the uh, hops are a 60-minute edition of CTZ, or Columbus Tomahawk Zeus, a 10-minute edition of Centennial, and a, a 20-minute steep edition of Cascade, right? Yep. And optional dry hop, but we're asking people not to do that. Just using the uh, the Chico Ale complex, so uh, Y East 1056, White Labs 001, or USO5. And the difference between the Pale Ale and the IPA and the Double IPA is the amounts on those. The Double IPA also does get an addition of sugar, uh, since that's traditional in a Double IPA. But... That's what we're doing, and this is going to be fun. Yeah, it, it is, and I think that it's going to test a number of things. Uh, number one, um, how accurate are your are your IBU estimates when you brew a beer? Number two, as we've always said, there are things that you can measure and things that you can taste. So how do the measured IBUs compare to the perceived bitterness of the beer that, that you're drinking? And uh, number three, there's uh, some debate about uh, how boil gravity really affects hop utilization. So we'll kind of maybe get a handle on uh, on a little bit of that also. It's going to be a really interesting experiment. We're really, really excited to have the AHA getting involved with us. And we are extremely grateful to uh, Nico for providing the hops for all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is the sort of thing where our sponsors rock and uh, kick some butt. So, hey, uh, by all means, if you uh, interact with the AHA or if you interact with Nico, uh, please tell them that you uh, heard about them here on the podcast or that you appreciate their support of the podcast because that really does mean a lot. And an experiment like this doesn't happen without the without their help because uh, we can't afford that much hop. <laughs> yeah, and and we really appreciate uh, a- the AHA and Zymergy pairing up for this so that we can get the results out to a, a lot, a lot of people through Zymergy magazine. Yeah, absolutely. Stick around. We'll be right back. Y-East's fourth quarter legacy curation features two legendary strains for autumn brewing, 1968 London ESB Ale and 1728 Scottish Ale. These yeast strains were isolated 30 years ago for our culture collection and continue to be brewmasters' top choices for traditional multi european ales today. Both are regarded for their high flocculation and suitability for strong and seasonal specialty styles like double IP. PAs, smoked and barrel-aged beers, British bitters, barley wine, and more. Completing this curation are two limited-release lager favorites, 2000 Boudvar Lager and 2001 Pilsner Urkel H-Strain. Available now through the end of December, Boudvar Lager delivers rich maltiness and subtle fruit notes while allowing hop character to come through in Czech lagers and German Helles styles. The Pilsner Urkel Strain produces mild floral aromas and a clean, dry palate and full mouthfeel for Czech lagers and Bohemian-style pilsners. Catch up on our latest blog posts and learn more about this release at yeastlab.com. The next 
generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Air Still Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug and play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. We've made our way over to the lab, and it is time to finally talk about the results of our IBU experiment. Uh, we've been we've been telling you this was coming for a long time, and uh, we just kind of had to coordinate things so we could get Glenn in on discussing it, and we finally did. So we are ready to drop the results on you. Yay. Uh, anything? <laughs> right. Anything you want to say before we get into the interview? Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, that I was really excited that we managed to pull this one off. And just as a reminder to everybody, yeah, 
None of this would have been possible without the support of Nico from NicoBrew.com, who provided us the hops. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But also uh, our sponsors at the AHA, who also helped sponsor out some of the costs of this and made this thing a possibility. So Yes, and especially you, Igors, we really, really appreciate all the effort that you guys went to to brew all these different beers and pack them up and send them off. Um, it, it's just... What can I say? We we love you, man. Yeah, yeah it, it, trust me, folks. Without our Igors uh, being as awesome as they are, none of this happens because uh, this is a lot of work. Yeah, and let me just also reiterate our thanks to Nico at uh, NicoBrew.com uh, for providing the hops for this and for uh, getting them sent off to YCH to have them tested before they went out. Uh, you're awesome, dude. Thanks again. So uh, we're going to start off this uh, little segment by playing an interview that I did with Dana Garvis, the owner of Oregon Brew Lab here in Eugene. She does uh, beer analysis for both commercial breweries and home brewers and uh, agreed to help us with our uh, experiment. So I talked to her uh, about her background, her lab, and uh, exactly how she was going to test the beers. We'll also have a video of the process that she went through uh, on our website, so you can uh, check that out also. It's so, actual uh, science. <laughs> yeah, really. Actual, real science, not citizen science, from a real scientist. So uh, sit back, relax, uh, enjoy this interview with Dana, and we'll be back in a few minutes. I am here at Oregon Brew Lab talking to Dana Garvis, the Oregon Brew Lab scientist. Founder. Founder. Accountant. Uh, yeah, chief cook and bottle washer. Marketing manager. Yeah, the cetera, whole thing. Well, thanks for your time today, and thanks for uh, analyzing the beers for us for our experiment. So why don't you talk a little bit about your background and yeah. how you ended up here with your own lab? Yeah, um, um, well, I got my degree in chemistry at U of O um, and immediately went into industry uh, testing water, which um, was very boring. Um, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of exciting stuff about water, especially wastewater or stormwater. You're dealing with some pretty nasty, nasty stuff, um, stuff you don't want to drink for sure. And uh, that lasted for about six months before I was ready to move on and find a different line of work um and i was browsing craigslist saw an ad for a brewing chemist and i thought i like beer i'm a chemist <laughs> and it has water in it, it has water <laughs> i'm very versed in quality control and uh so i kind of i was like well there's not very many breweries this is in 2006 mm-hmm. um you know there's not very many oh i'm sorry 2010 there's not very many breweries in eugene and so I looked on all their web pages to see who's hiring for right. this position. So I applied to um, Ninkasi's posting via Craigslist, via their uh, online their website posting, and then I also went in and dropped off a resume in person. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very adamant, I want this job and you're going to give it to me. <laughs> um, and like most people that work at Ninkasi, I didn't think that I had gotten the job. Um, and even when I first got there, when they were like, yeah, come in, we want to talk to you one more time. Um, and everyone was talking to me like, hey, like, congratulations. And I was like, oh, did, 
<laughs> did I get the job? Is that, is that me? And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, we forgot to mention. You got it. <laughs> so um, I spent four years, a little under four years at Ninkasi. Uh-huh. Um, I built their laboratory twice, once when I first got there, and then a second time when they did their rebuild or their mm-hmm. remodel in 2012. Um, and I also spearheaded their sensory program. And when their sensory program got too big for me to handle, because I was doing both the chemical side and the human side of beer testing, mm-hmm. um, we hired someone else from Firestone to come in, and that's Jared Clark, uh, to come in and take over the sensory part. Um, and basically spent four years learning about beer, learning about beer chemistry, working on my own palate. When I started, I was blind to diacetyl. Now I am not, <laughs> which is really, well, it isn't great um, because before I could drink bad beer and not yeah, know. Right. But now, now I can tell. I've, I've found that I have a hard time tasting it, but I can always feel that it. That mouthfeel, yeah. that slickness That's right. is a huge key for me. And yeah. it's one of the first time, it's that first indication, wait, maybe I should pay attention. Mm-hmm. Like something else is not right. Um, and so that slickness is what initially got me starting to identify diacetyl. And if you drink it enough, if you work and practice enough, you can get rid of those blind spots. It just yeah. takes a lot of dedication and drinking not great beer. You have to know what you don't know right. so that you can find it. Exactly. Exactly. It's very zen, I guess. It is a little <laughs> bit. It is. Um, you know, but a little drunk. So then what led you to set up your own lab? Yeah, so um, at Ninkasi, I was the scientist that did the yeast for ground control, their space Mm -hmm. yeast. Um, And, you know, when you're in a company like Ninkasi and you do something like shoot a rocket full of yeast into space, collect it, and then brew a beer out of it, there's not a whole lot of upward movement beyond that. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) how, How do you top that? And that was sort of when I had the inklings of Brew Lab coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I really started to notice was I opened up the Ninkasi lab to other brewers. I said, hey, if you need anything tested, let me know. Uh, Windmere does this up in Portland. Mm-hmm. I think Breakside does it also. Um, OSU does it for the Corvallis breweries. And so I was like, you know, all these people are trying to get testing, but no one, but there's not really a solid place to go. You can go to White Labs, right? But you're gonna you're gonna pay high dollar for that. Um, and I just got flooded, flooded with samples from everywhere, not just Oregon, not just <laughs> Eugene. Um, and the big wake up call, the really big one was. A small brew brew pub in Michigan had somehow made a growler its way all the way to Eugene to wow. get tested. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Um, and that was pretty much the point. Right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. Uh, leaving Ninkasi was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do because... I mean, it's just a family. It's sure. A, you know, it's a family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you know, not so mafia-esque, but it's right. very it's very interconnected, and it's a cushy job. Mm-hmm. You know, the great benefits, um, fun place to hang out. It doesn't necessarily feel like work. Right. So leaving was very scary, but um, I had a lot of support. Um, other, other people within the Ninkasi uh, family had also left to pursue kind of what they were already doing, mm-hmm. but for a more uh, consultation side. And so I left, started Brew Lab, got a loan for my workhorse, the Anton Parr. Right. Um, and have been actually successful ever since. Oh, congratulations. That is so <laughs> and, cool you know, to hear. My, yeah, my big um, mark for this is, you know, after my very first year in business, 
Brew Lab netted $27. <laughs> yeah, but you're positive. I know. I know. I ran a business for 30 years and only did that once or twice. You know, and, uh, and that, that felt real good. Cool. That, um, and I have over, now I'm at over 120 clients nationwide. I have one home brewer in Canada, so I can say I'm international. <laughs> <laughs> a multi-neighborhood corporation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's been awesome. I oh. mean, I really, you know, people are like, oh, you must have a really good job. I have the best job. I get to hang out with brewers. I get to hang out with some of the most down-to-earth people who really care about their product. Mm-hmm. And people who come to me care about their product. Right. Um, there's someone who really wants to make sure their quality is nailed down. Sure. They really want to make sure their alcohols and IBUs are accurate on their labels. And I think that that's a really good mark of a great brewery is someone who's who's seeking out ways to improve. Right. Right, they so. care. Yeah. So that's sort of my my background. That's, that my is so story. cool. That is so cool. I'm I'm really happy to hear stories like that, uh, especially people who succeed in the brewing industry without opening a brewery. It's uh, hard. Uh, it's real hard, as you may know. Yeah, it is. I mean, Drew and I kind of say that we were probably the only two home brewers in the world who have absolutely no interest in ever opening a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, no thanks. Why ruin a great yeah. hobby? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So tell me a little bit about what you're going to be doing with these beers. You're going to be analyzing them for IBUs yes. for us. And what's the process for doing that? So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to acidify a little bit of this beer. And what that does is it makes the humulones in there and the isohumulones mm-hmm. in there um, ready to move around. Mm-hmm. So it sort of breaks them away from the rest of the beer. Okay. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to add an organic solvent mm-hmm. on top of that uh, called isooctane or 224-trimethylpentane. Um, and shake it up real good. Right. Um, and if you want, I can actually take a video of it emulsifying. Oh, would you really? Yeah. That would be so yeah. cool. We'll put okay. it on the website yes. for people. Perfect. I'll do that. So then I emulsify it, which means I'm going to take these two phases that are um, unable to combine, right. kind of like salad um, <laughs> oil and vinegar. Oil and vinegar. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to shake it or mess with it so hard that it's going to become one substance, mm-hmm. and that's called an emulsification. Um, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to break that emulsification by spinning the samples around really fast in a centrifuge, mm-hmm. um, pulling out the beer, but leaving all of those isohumulones in the solution, the okay. organic solution. From that solution, I can put that into a spectrometer, shoot a laser through it, mm-hmm. and the more humulones it is, there are, right. the less amount of that laser is going to make it through the sample. And so we can determine the quantity right. of isohumulones in the beer sample. How cool. It is cool. That's very neat. I, I spent my first year of college as a chemistry major. Okay, so some And of I, I retained just yeah. enough to have a, yeah. some inkling of what you're talking about yep. there. That is and so one of the issues that um, we're having in the professional brewing, the, co- the commercial side, not professional, that's, that's a little rude maybe, but on the commercial side of brewing is that um, isohumulones don't necessarily mean your perceived bitterness, right. which I think is what you guys are sort of testing uh-huh. here, is to see you know, what's the difference between our IBUs and what we are actually tasting. Right. Because your perceived bitterness is, is including other things other than isohumulone. Right. Yeah, and one of the things that we are looking at is like, you know, we 
when Drew put all the recipes together for mm-hmm. people to brew, he used Beersmith to calculate, yes. you know, the expected so does he use, what's the Do you use Tinset tinset, tinset I, I, or? I, I mean, I'll have to ask him, but I think he did use Tinset. Okay. Uh, I got to meet Glenn a year yeah. or so oh, ago. Very I was cool. down, at, uh, down in Arcata, California, for a big uh, beer festival, and uh, he teaches at Humboldt State, and came up to me and uh, and introduced himself, and uh, we're actually hoping, I corresponded with him several times since then to tell him what we're doing mm-hmm. with this and uh, I, we're hoping to actually have him on the show to help us analyze the results oh, that we cool. get. Oh, cool. Very cool. So, yeah. So, but what one thing that that we're looking at is the variation in the results mm-hmm. because as we know people's processes and mm-hmm. you know the way they brew and stuff like that is going to affect this oh, yeah. so what we want to do is find out when people use brewing software to you know calculate how many IBUs they're getting mm-hmm. in their beer are they really? Yeah. You know, right. when, it, when is an IBU not an IBU kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things that I find um, you pick up extra IBUs is when you're not able to cool down your wort mm-hmm. before fermenting. Right. Um, you're going to still be isomerizing those humulones and right. going to be adding And, and that's, a, that's an experiment that we have uh, scheduled for the future is, you know, because so many people are into whirlpool hops mm-hmm. these oh, days. Yeah. What we want to try and do is somehow get some idea of how many IBUs what your you're, you're is. picking up there, mm-hmm. you know, as you whirlpool yeah. those hops, say like at 160 or 180 or yeah. whatever. Well, and that's an, another good point is if your gravity is higher, those sugars are going to inhibit that isomerization. Right. And so, you know, the higher gravity your final product, the less amount of IBUs you're actually. Now, and you have touched on a very interesting thing. Um, the, and the main reason I was in correspondence with Glenn mm-hmm. is because I had talked to John Palmer, who has a theory um, that comes from Tom somebody up at OSU. Shellhammer? Yes. Shellhammer? Yes. That it's not the gravity and the sugars themselves, but the increased amount of proteins from a higher gravity wort I would not be surprised. coat the hops and cause the reduced utilization. So it's not the gravity per se, it's the the other things that happen when you have a higher yeah. gravity beer. Interesting. Uh, Glenn doesn't buy that at all. Well, you know what we could do um, is put on the horizon me because I do have the ability to test for protein. Oh, really? We could see if there's You're some on. sort of yes. correlation between higher gravity beers with protein and, and hops. Yeah, that's right. We could we could brew the same wort at two different gravities. Yes. And then look at the protein levels in each one of those yep. in terms of and hop And then determine IBUs yeah. afterwards. Oh, you are on. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Oh, this is oh, this is cool, Dana. <laughs> we'll have to when I, next time I see you, I will bring you one of our official Igor pins. We have these Ooh. little pins made for people who help us with our testing. And you have just earned yours with yes. those ideas. Oh, good. So. Yeah, well, and like I said, I, um, I often feel like in the uh, commercial side of brewing, um, there's sort of this disconnect between um, being in production and then being a hobbyist or a home mm-hmm. brewer. And I do feel like there's much more in common that we all have as a home brewer, as a commercial brewer, um, than they let on. 
Yeah, right. And I feel like homebrewers kind of get the short end of the stick occasionally, and so I am actively trying to <laughs> engage with homebrewers because they're a really big part of our community. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at how many commercial brewers came from the homebrew community. You look at how many beer trends get pulled into the commercial world yes. from the homebrew world. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, we have been talking to Dana Garvis here at Oregon Brew Lab, and uh, we will be getting the results for these beers she's analyzing for us. And we'll also post a link to her website. She does a lot of other kinds of things besides just IBU analysis. And uh, if you're looking for a place to get your own homebrew analyzed, I highly recommend you get in touch with Dana and send it in to her. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. I'm so excited to work with you guys in the future, too. We we are, too. I just love your ideas. So it's going to be very cool. Yeah, let's keep it up. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Cheers. All right. That was Dana Garvis from Oregon Brew Lab talking about the analysis of the IBU beers. Uh, And uh, big, big thanks to Dana for helping us out here. And uh, she had some great suggestions for future experiments. So I'm sure that we're going to be hearing from her again. And uh, we're going to put a link to Oregon Brew Lab on our website. And if any of you guys out there want to have your beers tested for any number of things, uh, I would recommend you contact Dana and uh, have her do it for you. Yeah, I'm going to say I love the fact that we have now entered the time of brewing history where you, I, any joker with, you know, just a couple of dollars and some beer can actually get access to some big time tests and, you know, get a better idea of exactly what it is that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, her lab is in a garage attached to her house, but that doesn't mean that it's not a real lab. She had some serious equipment there, and she knows what to do with it. There you go. All right. Well, hey, and now, of course, now, of course, we get to the to the big the the big part of the episode because this was the part that actually took us the longest to arrange. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're very, very happy to be able to talk with, you know, while we were looking here going, hey, you know, we got all these IBU numbers and how do we make sense of them? And, you know, what the heck is an IBU anyway? And how did these calculations come about? It naturally occurred to us that, well, maybe we ought to ask the guy who, well, made the formula that we all use. Yeah, I was uh, down in Arcata, California a couple years ago for the uh, Humboldt Homebrew Fest. Great event. And uh, I was sitting there selling books, and a guy came up and introduced himself to me, and it was Glenn Tinseth, and I was thrilled. It's a guy that uh, I've, I've read his writings, I've used his formula for years. It was it was great to finally meet him. So uh, we called him up and asked him to comment on the findings and uh, talk a little bit about how he developed the formulas and his background. So, go grab yourself another beer, unless you're driving, and uh, we're going to listen to uh, the interview that we did with Glenn talking about uh, our hop experiment and uh, his hop experiments. Okay, it is finally time to announce the results of our IBU experiment, and uh, we have a very special guest with us today in order to do that. Uh, you've probably heard his name before. Uh, we're talking to Glenn Tinseth, the man behind the hop calculations that you probably use. Hey, Glenn, thanks for joining us today. Ah, it's fun to be here. 
<laughs> Good. I hope you'll be saying that uh, 15 or 20 minutes from now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and experience with home brewing? Okay. Um, I started home brewing, uh, I guess, mid-80s here in Humboldt County. Um, the first beer we did was a, a stout, and we entered it in the uh, Humboldt County Fair, and at that time you could watch people's faces as they tasted your beer, and three out of the four judges refused to taste it, and the third <laughs> tasted it and spit it out, so <laughs> feedback. Yeah, and, really, And, and yet you hard. continued. <laughs> yeah, well... What that did is it accelerated the switch to all-grain brewing, um, and from then on, it just was, was easy to continue because everything turned out really well, and uh, and it was cheap, way cheaper than extract, and that was the perfect um, combination of things, good taste and cheap um, for a college student. So, do you still brew these days? I haven't homebrewed in ages, but during the summer, I'm a fill-in brewer for Mad River Brewing Company in Blue Lake, California. So whenever they have someone on vacation or just need an extra hand, um, I'm trained up on the system, and they can call me. And uh, my wife says it's not really a job. She says it's beer camp. (laughs) It is a job. (laughs) Yeah, she should try it. So instead of substitute teaching, you're a substitute brewer. Yeah, it's kind of, I, you know, I do a bunch of different things. I teach at the university, teach chemistry, and I also have my own tax uh, consulting business. It's about to wow. go into high gear here. Yeah, yeah I'll bet, man. That's a, that's a real renaissance man kind of thing. <laughs> well, it kind of balances. I teach full-time in the fall and just a tiny bit in the spring and when the you know, when the, the tax season's hitting. Uh-huh. And then summers for, are free for both of those businesses, so that leaves me time to go and brew. Okay, that sounds great, man. Oh, there you go. Well, now, I guess here's the the obvious question. You know, I think most homebrewers these days, you know, if they they know your name because it's sitting there in all those uh, recipe formulators that we use, you know, Beersmith and ProMash, and, and it's right there, just that little button that says, which hop formula do you want to use? So I guess really the question is, what made you go and decide, I want to have my hop formula? Okay. Uh, this goes back to... Um when we were poor and trying to pay for our mortgage on our farm. And uh, we, my wife and I both started little businesses. And the business I started, since I was in the middle of Oregon hop country at that time, was to <clears throat> take cops, vacuum seal them, and uh, sell them um, mail order. Uh, at that point, Fresh Hops was the main hops supplier in Corvallis, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, no, no fault of his, but he was, sending them out in Ziploc bags. And uh, I, coming from, you know, working on my Ph.D. in chemistry, knew that oxygen was the enemy. And so I got one of those cheap uh, food savers from Costco and modified it to use less expensive bags than the ones you have to buy for it. And um, published a little uh, uh, catalog. And at that time, most of the online folks were using a forum called rec.crafts.brewing. Oh, yes, I remember that. Kind of dating ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of gently got information out, and people started writing for that catalog. And 
I decided I wanted to have not just a catalog, but a lot of content. And so I wrote a few articles. I was writing for Brewing Techniques at the time as well, and uh, included this hop research I had been doing on the side. Um, and, you know, just put it out there, and then it just sort of took off. I mean, this is 94, I think. And I had, you know, spent half the time when I should have been working on my dissertation in the library reading articles on uh, hop usage and utilization. And luckily I was able to get a lot of data from there and also from the brand new brewing program at Oregon State. They dumped a bunch of data on me and then I did quite a few brews um, wherein I traded work in the hop lab, the USD hop lab there, in exchange for using their instruments to do some testing. And that's how it came about. It was kind of like a value-added proposition for my hop business. Um, and then it had a life of its own, obviously. Well, and it definitely goes to show that homebrewers have always kind of been eager to have more of that scientific information because uh, obviously I think right now we're in sort of a renaissance of that as well between you know us here on this podcast and uh, Brewlosophy and a couple of others who are out there trying to do homebrew science, but uh, you had the actual tools back in the day, it sounds like. Well, also, most of the people on those early forums had internet access, which meant you were most likely either a defense employee or a university uh, student or employee. And so lots of engineers and scientist types we're really pushing, you know, pushing the limits of what was out there. And frankly, what was out there was Rager um, and a totally wrong uh, hop utilization curve that, you know, just kinetically couldn't be. Um, and that's one of the first thing reasons I tackled it because I knew it wouldn't be that S-shaped curve that he had. So uh, my question is, how did you make the beer that you analyzed to get these numbers? Uh, was were these just like you know small samples you you put together in the lab, or did you actually brew batches? Or how did that work? Yeah, I, I did full batches in my you know it was a Sankey keg on a on a jet burner outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, although most of the data came from the literature. I mean, I had data from Asahi and Guinness and Sierra Nevada. And like I said, all the data from the OSU hop lab, I just brewed my own homebrew batch to confirm that there was no differences between these big commercial-scale brews and, you know, my little 10-gallon brewery. Um, once I had the, the curve that I had put together, I wanted to make sure that it matched from a homebrewer scale. And so I, I basically would do a 10-gallon batch, <clears throat> take samples all along the way, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, you know, and then do another one at a different gravity, just enough to confirm what I was seeing in the published literature. And you ended up with a lot of beer to drink after that, too, huh? Yeah, yeah I, had, uh, I had lots of friends. <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting. Go figure. That's really interesting to me that the differences between your homebrew system and uh, the commercial systems that the results you were looking at were drawn from uh, that they really were so consistent between the two. Well, you know, it's the shape of the curve that's consistent. Um, you can there's a couple of factors in my equations that you can change, and I think they'll take into account things like boil vigor or uh, kettle geometry, right? Um, that sort of thing. Um, and so the numbers might rise or fall, but the the utilization. Um, the geometry of the curve should stay about the same. Got it. Well, I was going to say, I think maybe we ought to take a step back and and walk people through, like, 
when we're talking about these calculations, what exactly the curve is and what the ver- various factors are that you saw affecting the creation of the, uh, or sorry, the various factors that you saw that ended up with these numbers that we now have. Right. I think most of us would guess how much you, how many ounces of hops you add and how long you boil them for are probably going to be the biggest. Um, most of the literature put as number two uh, the, the gravity of the boil. Um, and so those are the ones I stuck with just because you can just start listing things off and not stop for five minutes of other things that might, um, you know, pH, just go on and on and on. But those are the two big things, how, how much hops you added and how long you boiled them for and what was the uh, average gravity of the boil. So let's uh, let's get into talking about our experiment now. Um, the purpose of this really was uh, for us to try and get a handle on uh, how accurate the estimates homebrewers are getting of uh, the IBUs in their beer. And uh, in order to do that, let me just run through the basic experiment here for our audience. We uh, we started off by getting some hops from uh, Nico Lukoff at Nico Brew. Uh, Nico, before we sent them out to people to brew with, sent them over to YCH Hops to get them analyzed so that we would know exactly what the AA level of those hops was at that moment before they went out. Uh, all these different brewers brewed a pale ale, an IPA, and a double IPA, sent samples back to me, and uh, we had them uh, analyzed here in uh, a lab in Eugene, and uh, compared those to the predicted results uh, in the recipes. Is that about it, Drew? Did I forget anything? Well, and then also a portion of the beer was sent down to my neck of the woods, where we then did hedonistic testing. Right. And we had we had tasters rank both their perceived bitterness and the perceived enjoyment that they had for that particular beer. And I should mention also that uh, our uh, our lab person, Dana Garvis at Oregon Brew Lab, uh, is also a trained sensory analyst, and so uh, she made her own guesses about what the IBUs were in some of these beers, which were very interesting. So, uh, time to get into the results? Yeah, So, and we provided Glenn with a copy of uh, the results that we had from everybody. Now, when we did the calculations, uh, all three of the recipes were effectively the same recipe, just scaled up in terms of uh, amount of ingredients. So like the pale ale was 10 pounds of uh, domestic two row, one pound of Munich malt, and a half a pound of crystal malt for a five and a half gallon batch. Uh, and then it was bittered with CTZ, uh, had additions of Centennial and Cascade in order to you know round out the hopping profile and make it very kind of traditional American craft brew hopping. Uh, and then the double IPA and the IPA were the same gen- general bill, just bumped up in strength. So when we did the calculations, according to the things that we have out there, uh, it, all out of uh, my Beersmith software that I was using, the American Pale Ale uh, calculated out when we used uh, Glenn's formula to about 32 IBUs. And when we stepped through the eight entries that we had Dana uh, measure for us, uh, they ranged uh, actually i think a a fairly wide margin uh lowest ibu measurement that we had was actually 20 ibus and the highest one that we saw in the pale ale was 43 ibus and the prediction uh, was for uh 31.8 so there's quite a range there yep 
And so, and when you average out all the measurements, it comes in, it comes into about, uh, 32 IBUs, which is dead on what the calculation said it was supposed to be. Yeah. That's averaged across the eight batches. And that's, that's when you average them though, but man, there's some real outliers there. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed it's, um, 34% 34% on the high end and 25% on the low end. I mean, that's that's a huge swing. Yeah, yeah, it really is, man. I mean, you know, and we have we have one guy who got 43 IBUs out of a prediction of uh, about 32, and one guy who got 20. So, what do you think, Glenn? What what could account for that kind of swing? Um, I, I would bet it's um, maybe boil bigger. I mean, are we talking flowers or pellets here? These were all pellets. Okay. Well, that throws my calculations out the window. It was just lucky that that came even close. Uh, no one and none of the data I, I used had anything to do with pellets. Um, oh, so now that's so that's I, interesting. I used to have a huge disclaimer there that you're, you're on your own. <laughs> now, yeah, well, see, that's, now that's interesting, though, because I think almost everybody that I know of blindly uses these formulas, and almost all of us use pellets these days. So, yeah, hmm. it is. It's back back in the day, you know, pellets were definitely not the quality of what they are today. Um, it's, a, it's a huge difference between what we used to be able to get and what you can get now. Wow. Well, that, that's that's in, very very interesting, and I'm sure that that's something that uh, a lot of people out there didn't know, just like we didn't know that either. So, <laughs> so I guess also, they, you know, pellets disperse so quickly, and there's no real uh-huh. worry. As much about boil vigor and or or protein coating. You know, when flowers get coated, that's kind of the end of their being dissolving the humulones. And but pellets are dispersed immediately. And uh, so I would I would bet the differences here are probably boil vigor and kettle geometry. Okay. Yeah. And well, and looking through the results as we as we step through the other beers. You know, in the IPA, you know, the formula, for, uh, your formula predicted out uh, 58 IBUs, uh, roughly. And there we saw a very similar sort of spread where we saw one person with 37 IBUs measured, and I think we our highest was uh, 66. Uh, yeah. And, and then in Again, the double IPA. Again, 30% spread up and down. Yeah. 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 Well, and then in the double IPA, which is the one that I figured would be the one that showed the wonkiest results, uh, I think that actually bears out because uh, the double IP had a predicted IBU of 75.9, I believe. And on the low side of that one, we had three scores all the way down in the 40s. We had a 44, a 45, and a 46. And then the highest was a 71. So nobody actually topped up to the, or went up and over what the calculation was, which kind of makes some sense, right? Because right. as you're getting out there along the gravity uh, bounds, the curve is going to become more and more. Uh, off and so it was really interesting to see that there were also trends where you were saying okay well it's probably you know some of its boil vigor or kettle geometry and you know we had consistently the brewers who were on the lower side in each of these categories were the same brewers so if we had somebody brewing the exact same uh, beer through all three beers we saw each time that they would be on the low side um right where I think the one that cracks me up is one of our uh, one of our brewers, and I don't know why. You know, his IPA came in at 43 IBUs uh, as measured. His double IPA, which has a lot more hops in it, came in as measured as 44 IBUs. <laughs> maybe he's just wow. like 
Maybe he's just like eating the hot pellets on the side, not putting them into the beer. No, there you go. No, you're not. You're not supposed to chew the hops. They're supposed to go in the kettle. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, this gets back to one of the things I often tell people who want to get down to the hundredth of the IBU. You know, you're going to get within ten percent if you're lucky, and you mm-hmm. can see that we didn't necessarily even get within ten percent on these three batches because um, some of them are off by thirty plus percent. Right. Um, so my main take-home message to brewers is just do what you do and be consistent. And if you use Rager or you use my method or Garrett's method, just be consistent. Use your same boiler and your same pot, and any changes you make, take notes and see if you like it. Um, because the, at some level, the number becomes meaningless, right? Right. The, your, well, ta- your taste buds should be your guide. Which well, I was going to say, in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and in a lot of ways, it seems like everybody talks about IBU. I think because so many brewers are scientifically minded, they talk about like this number has an absolute meaning, right? You know, it's like Kelvin. And in truth, IBU is sort of a weird, kind of not really a real thing. It's just kind of a stakeholder, you know, something for you to kind of center around. Because, I mean, nominally, IBU as measured in these, in these anal- uh, analysis is, yeah, the amount of absorption at XYZ nanometers of light, you know, in a formula prepared in a certain sort of way, and that supposedly correlates to, or that carries a close correlation to the amount of dissolved isoalpha acid. Now, of course, modern dry hopping throws that off, but that's a whole other story, which is why we didn't have people dry hop these. Um, well, and it really also, does, it, it, we picked the, the biggest peak where light absorbs for the thing you're looking at, but there's other things absorbing that same wavelength of light that aren't mm-hmm. hop-related. And so you, the IBU measures all the things that absorb that light, not just the thing we're interested in. And so it, it is affected by other things, too. <laughs> wow. You mean chemistry is not just like a simple, straightforward thing? Well, when we do basic research, we eliminate all these complications, you know? <laughs> Like life. <laughs> Assume that you have an elephant that's round and yeah. in a vacuum. Yeah, you're getting into the reason why uh, my experience as a chemistry major in college only lasted two terms, and then I switched to English. <laughs> what, one thing I found interesting is um, the sensory numbers that. Uh, what was her name? I'm sorry. Dana. Dana. Uh-huh. Um, were pretty spot on for the pale ale and the IPA, but really consistently higher than the IBU number for the double IPA. In all in all of them but one, I think, her perceived bitterness was higher yeah. than the measured IBUs. I wonder if maybe that could have a, a bit of confirmation bias to it, you know? Uh, I mean, she's... Yeah. She is trained to be able to recognize IBU levels, but maybe there's something about saying to yourself, uh, this is a double IPA, so it's got to be higher. And I'm not casting aspersions on Dana here no. by any means. Uh, no, yeah, she, she mouth, got a lot. Mouthfeel issues there and you, just straight alcohol issues. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, and yeah, let's be fair. I mean, Dana Dana got pretty close on a fair number of these and got way closer than I ever was. Oh, yeah, I know. Man, I, I, I could not have done it <laughs> yeah. at all. I saw her numbers and went, geez, man, that woman has some skills. Yeah, and, yep. we'll, and we'll have all this published uh, on the, the website when we get to it. But uh, I did think it was interesting that 
and you're looking at her sensory bitterness and how it tracks, you're you're right that like the IPAs she was pretty uh, pretty spot on. And then when we get to the double IPAs, the numbers actually aren't really all that different away from the IP uh, the IPA levels. You know, even though the measured IBUs are a little bit different. Right. You know, those are a little bit higher. So it was kind of interesting that even moving up into the double IPA, where you'd expect to kind of have a little bit of that confirmation bias of, oh, well, you know, this has to be hoppier. You know, the numbers were actually still fairly close to what she was pulling for the, the IPAs. Right. 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 So, Glenn, do you still have your website up? Yeah, I do. I mean, I haven't really maintained it. <laughs> well, but the, the basic info is there. Yeah, it's realbeer.com slash hops. Okay, great. And we'll we'll put a link to that on our website, too, so people can go uh, take a look at your work. There's, there's a lot of dead links there, but since it's kind of one of the early versions of a beer website, I've left them because it acknowledges some of those early uh, founders. In fact, I still have the code for the original hop calculator when it used to be a a CGI bin script that ran on the server, no. which completely, completely disallowed now. <laughs> but the C code is there if you want to steal it. Drew, yeah. I'm sure that being a programmer, you can appreciate that. Oh, yeah, no, but uh, I don't want to get anywhere near C these days. <laughs> it's well documented, though. <laughs> Comment Lies. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as a well-documented C program that doesn't have a comment of the code <laughs> is the comment. <laughs> I, I, but I found you. JavaScript much more uh, uh, friendly when I switched over. <laughs> yeah. So, Drew, well, anything else we need to talk to Glenn about here? Well, yeah, I was going to say. So, Glenn, if you were trying to tackle uh, creating the curve and the formula again today. What do you think that you would uh, you would look for? And what might you change? I mean, we already talked about part of it is, you know, a good portion of your data is all based on whole hops and not on pellets. So uh, that right. seems like one obvious change. Sure, I, I would definitely do uh, work with pellets. I would probably uh, probably like to bring in some pH playing around um, in the boil and see what mm-hmm. happens there because it's such a big factor in, in chemical reactions. Um, and, you know, boil vigor and kettle geometry, you can't really do that much about, and there's so many different variables that right. mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know where to go with that. But I would definitely track, maybe, you know, get jump on the bandwagon with everybody and look at protein levels. But I, I, I bet that protein tracks pretty well with gravity. Um, that would be my my initial guess. Yeah, you know, and I had... I had separate told, those out. Yeah, and I had told you that uh, John Palmer had been talking to uh, Tom Shellhammer up at OSU, and, and their theory is that it is protein levels that, that make a difference, although I, I have yet to see what kind of uh, evidence they have to back that up. Well, w- one way to, to do an experiment here would be to track the unisomerized alpha acids, and see how quickly they get into solution, um, and then the protein effect is kind of irrelevant if it's if it's a physical effect because once those uh, unisomerized alpha acids are in solution, they just need to isomerize, and the protein's not going to get in the way of that. Um, but then, if it takes a while, then maybe it is a blocking action by the protein. Right. I don't know. I'm just I'm not a biochemist. What do I know? <laughs> 
Well, well, hey, you know, uh, it, it's something to look into, and, and maybe uh, we can get a hold of Tom and ask him about it, too. Well, That's and I'm kind of curious. so attractive to deal with the simple stages. You know, I'm a physical chemist, and kinetics is right, you know, down my alley. And uh, <laughs> I, the article you sent me recently that kind of confirm, confirms the shape of the curve made me very happy because the whole time I was waiting to be proven a fraud for the last 20 years. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> well, uh, for, fortunately, everybody's uh, too busy enjoying their pints, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, here's a question that I have. So, obviously, when you were doing this, you know, IPA was still kind of a, you know, just a, a thing that some people would have. It wasn't, you know, three quarters of the market like it seems like it is today. Right. I'm, I'm wondering if we were, if we were to look to, you know, trying to do a, mo- a modern update or more data for this, you know, how how the performance of the curve would change, you know, based on some of these sort of outrageous hopping techniques that people are doing and outrageous hop loads and, and high gravities and whirlpool additions versus 10 minute additions versus, you know, all these questions that people ask us like, Oh, does it make a difference if you're, if you're whirlpooling this particular way, or if you add the hops in at 20 minutes, um, I'd be really curious to see how all that would affect yeah, the numbers are coming out the same. Yeah, it's not like it's an on or off thing. It's the the, the boil temperature isn't magic. I mean, if you're a couple mm-hmm. degrees below, you're still pretty much at boil temperature. Even if you're 10 degrees below, you're still getting isomerization. It, it's it's not an on or off switch. And so, mm-hmm. it, 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 it would be interesting to do some work on different temperatures of holding hops in the whirlpool or whatever, or in a torpedo. You know, they they have all kinds of different ways where hops aren't boiled but they're still mm-hmm. contributing bitterness. So it makes it much harder when you complicate things like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we, we had an experiment that we had our Igors do not that long ago where we had them try comparisons of hops held at, in Whirlpool at, what was it, Denny? It was just 170 versus 140? I thought it was 160 and 180, but <laughs> it's a, a while back, I'd have to go look up the data on the website. Yeah, but uh, it, it was interesting to see because you had all these people saying, "Oh, well, you know, if you do the, if you do this other sort of way of doing it, then it's going to be more hop oils and less volatilization and less bitterness." And I think uh, if I'm remembering the the solutions or the outcome correctly, it was a little bit of a mixed bag where we had some people going, "Oh, there's no difference," and we had other people going, "Well, you know, there's a, there's no difference here that I'm going to keep doing it this way." Hmm. Interesting. I, that's the the. The, getting back to consistency, you know, people have to decide on a method uh, that works for them and their brewery. That, that's what I always try to emphasize. And, again, you know, the numbers are interesting, especially if you can afford to get them analyzed. That's the best way. But uh, it just provides a, a benchmark, you know, a little, a little comparison that you can make. You know, what I always oh. say is uh, you don't drink the numbers, you drink the beer. <laughs> oh, by the hey. way package with these beers for me to taste has never arrived oh well um, we'll take care of that i'll get your address later <laughs> actually actually i can do that glenn so uh stand by when we're done here and i'll get uh, actually i'll shoot you an email later and get get a shipping address and send them down to you and you can try it yourself uh, you'll have some fun nights I, I, I honestly was teasing but i thought the more I look at these numbers, the more thirsty I get. <laughs> well, you know it's, what? It's funny how that works. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I would love to send some down to you as, a, as a thank you for your time, man, uh, because I can't drink them all. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, by the way, I went back and I looked up our uh, Whirlpool numbers. Yeah. Uh, the experiment was actually 170 degrees Whirlpool versus 120 degrees Whirlpool. And see what the well, people got out of it. That's a difference, though. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and the argument was, you know, if you hold it at 120, you'll get better hop aroma and whatnot. And when people did the iron triangle, when people did the iron triangle, <laughs> when people did the triangle test, we had, uh, let me see, we had six different uh, panels that we kept into the numbers because one of them had a sort of a outlier effect. And of those six, three showed significance and three didn't. So it was kind of a, a, a split bag in terms of whether or not people could even tell the difference between a beer that had had hops whirlpooled at 170 versus hops whirlpooled at 120. Yeah. Now, you did an ABA test where two were the same and one was different, and they had to pick the two that were the same? That is correct. They had to pick the one that was different. Yeah, the one that's different. The one that was different. The, the okay. inverse. Um, yeah, the inverse of it. Interesting. Plus, you have the complication of 120 being in the danger zone yeah. bacterially, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know if that's anything that, that anybody would ever want to do as a regular thing because of that, but uh, yeah. we, we wanted to get a big spread, at least, for the test. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you, and, man, I've learned a bunch of stuff. And I've learned that there's actually a man behind the behind the name on the formula. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, I, I learned the same thing at the homebrew festival here a couple of years ago when there was Denny sitting at one of the tables, and that we we introduced each other and finally placed a face to a name. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh, I was it was great to meet you. I'm so glad you came up and introduced yourself. Uh, and since you get up this way every once in a while, uh, let me know when you're coming, uh, and I'll buy you several beers. Okay. Yeah, just make sure that <laughs> like if he uh, gets you a beer, yeah, just make sure that if he gets you a beer, that he actually remembers to bring it to you. <laughs> yeah, right. <that's- laughs> All right. right, Glenn. Thanks once again for joining us, and uh, I'll uh, I'll shoot you an email and get your address and send some of these beers down for you. Oh, I would love that. Great. Thanks again, man. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Well, you know, it was really great to talk with Glenn. I, you know, you kind of think like, hey, you know, there is actually somebody attached to that name that we all see. You know. And to really kind of learn a little bit about what he was thinking when he was doing the the formulas and you know all the research they had access to and all the tools they had as at his uh, disposal, so it suddenly makes sense why that formula has lasted for 20 years and is still used today. But I do think there are a couple big takeaways, uh, at least for me, I think, for everybody to go with. Uh, one is that that formula of his was designed for whole leaf hops and not pellets. Yeah, that that blew me away, man. It's like, oh, hmm, I wonder how relevant this is. Yeah, and then the other one is, of course, what I think the biggest lesson, and it plays right into that about uh, pellets versus whole, is at some point in time, you just have to kind of look at these numbers and treat them as your own relative scale. To know that on my system, doing things the way I do it, when I calculate something out that comes out to 60 IBUs, it tastes like this to me. And that this is a marker that you that you put down in, in your perceptual memory. 
And from that point, you swing around it. Like, I want something that's more bitter than that beer, so maybe I'll swing it up to a 70 or a 75. And you set down a new marker. I want something less bitter. Okay, I'll go for a 30. And that's really at even the craft beer level uh, until you get to the really big leagues and you have all the equipment to really drive home consistency. That's a lot of what you're going to be doing with your recipe design and your brewing. So more important than anything else, consistency in terms of your practice, consistency in terms of your calculation, and then use that to drive what a 60 IBU beer means to you. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, Glenn said that he could hardly believe he was saying it, but basically it's you know the the taste that counts. So uh, that's what that's what you really want to go for. Get the beer to taste the way you like it, then say, okay, I assume these are the IBUs. So uh, something else I wanted to mention is that uh, Dana is actually a trained sensory analyst also. Mm-hmm. So she went through these beers and tasted them and uh, made her guess at what the IBU levels were and did way better than I would ever do. So uh, we're going to put that data up on the website also so that you can uh, see in a spreadsheet what she thought that these beers were and uh, how close they were to reality. Yeah, I think they'll, I think that will definitely be useful and kind of surprising and eye-opening. Yeah. And particularly given... Given that, I mean, one of my first memories that I remember having with a pro brewer about uh, brewing and IBUs was having a conversation with John Mayer at uh, at an AHA conference one year. And he asked me about a beer I made, and I said, oh, it's this, and it comes out to like, you know, 1063 OG and 75 IBUs, or actually, I think I said 100 IBUs because of the beer. And he's like, okay, so that's about 60. And I was like, what? <laughs> Turns out, John was right. Yeah, well, imagine that, huh? The guy who's been brewing for over half his life knows what he's talking about. Yeah, Uh, that that never happens. Yeah, right. So, you know, what we saw was a really wide range of, uh, of results here, and we talked about it a little bit with Glenn, but I think that, uh, one of the things that, uh, we didn't discuss was the, impact that chilling might have made and i you know we really didn't talk to the brewers about how they were chilling or anything else but it's it's possible that uh some of the late hop additions contributed more bitterness than others because of the way that uh, the beer was chilled the chilling effect might have had a chilling effect huh it might have but i'm also really curious about what was going on with the brewers that we saw that were consistently low yeah, right. Because well, you know what, and and Glenn mentioned uh, boil vigor and kettle geometry as two big factors that uh, are hard to control. So, um, I guess uh, I guess what we'll have to do is uh, repeat this experiment and get uh, the most minute details about everybody's brewing process, huh? Yeah, time to measure the pH and the protein levels and the this and that. <laughs> yeah. Science is hard. Yeah. So anyway, let's just wrap this up here. Uh, I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed these conversations and uh, get something out of this uh, this experiment. Um, you know, it obviously there are no conclusive results, uh, 
but there are some interesting results that might make you consider the way you brew and, uh, and, and what you think is happening. Uh, if you have any questions about the experiment or the results of the interpretation, have any ideas of your own, please shoot us an email to podcast at experimentalbrew.com and give us your thoughts. So there you go. Part one of All About the IBU. We'll have part two in the next episode, and we'll be talking to the brewers who brewed the beers, and we'll be looking at the MIBU formula to see if that maybe can be something that's helpful for you. But thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter or X, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out in the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me on the AHA discussion forum, the brew house at the beer garden, and I hang out on Facebook way, way too much. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimental brew. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can send us a text or voicemail at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally, or brew wacky, as Drew would say. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.